0: We cover a great deal of terra firma in this podcast, but not so much as on the rivers and streams of the Panhandle and Florida Peninsula, along with the outlying islands. These bodies of water had an outsized impact on the conduct and campaigning of the Seminole Wars. As fortune has it, Doug Alderson has that covered for us. He podcasted with us previously about his seminal trail of Florida, a smart travel guide. He returns this week to connect river composition and range in its various arteries, veins, and cataracts for use by the Seminoles and soldiers in this long Florida conflict. In Florida's rivers, a celebration of over 40 of the Sunshine State's dynamic waterways, Doug examines the big rivers, the clear streams, and the muddy waters of Florida. In this podcast, Doug takes us to the rivers that featured so prominently in his book, We discuss the Apalachicola River and the hot shot that destroyed the Negro Fort at Prospect Bluff. We consider the Hillsborough River, where Major Dade and his men forded the waters after Seminole burned the bridge across its span. And we travel to the peninsula's tip, to where Colonel Hardy encountered Spanish Seminole Indians at the Miami River. Doug does this and still finds time to cover the battles and skirmishes for most everything else in between. Then Doug teases a look at the Florida coastline for further exploration on this topic. Doug Alderson, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Thank you. Good to be back. You're going to explain to us the connection between Florida rivers and the Seminole Wars. But first, we need to define what are the rivers. So how do you categorize your book?
1: We're talking mostly about Florida's rivers. My latest book is a hardback featuring over 40 of Florida's rivers. I divide the book into three parts. One's called, I call the Mighty Rivers. Those are the larger rivers. And there's a few of those in Florida. Some are alluvial, meaning they carry a lot of sediment. But the only one that comes from the Appalachian Mountains is the Apalachicola. So I covered the Apalachicola, the Chattahoochee, the Suwannee, the Peace, the St. John's. Those are the major Mighty Rivers. And then I covered the Spring-Fed Rivers, which I call Spring-Fed Gems. And there's several of those. They largely originate with springs. A lot of the larger rivers do have some springs on the side, but these particular rivers are ones that pretty much are formed from springs with some other feeder streams that come in. And then I have a long list of swamp streams, which are really the blackwater rivers. And the southern United States, along with the Amazon, are really the two major areas of the world that have these blackwater streams. And they mostly originate from swamps. And they tend to have the darker tannin waters, They're kind of like the color of tea sometimes coffee, and Florida has many of these dark streams. But against the white sand bank or bottom, they often appear kind of golden colors. They're very pretty, especially some of those in the panhandle that I'm familiar with, like, such as the Blackwater River. So that's how I divide the book, and I do have a chapter on how you can help the Florida rivers, because many face different problems dealing with pollution or development and so forth. So There's many ways that people can get involved, and every river needs a champion, and many of them do. So it's easy to hook into a group of people, either local groups or statewide conservation groups, and uh, champion our Florida rivers.
0: Some of these rivers are so key, we call them arteries. Talk about that. I'll give an example of
1: an artery, the Capalachicola. It's the only river that comes from the Appalachian Mountains, so it comes down from the Chattahoochee River and the Flint River, forms the Apalachicola at the Georgia border. The river itself in Florida is about 106 miles long, but if you add up all the side streams, the capillaries, that's about 400 miles. So four times the length of these different streams than the actual river. So it tells you the Apalachicola, it's a huge system, huge basin, and these capillaries feed into the main artery that goes into Apalachicola Bay and feeds this great estuary.
0: All of the native tribes, not just the Seminoles, would be familiar with these rivers in their various configurations. Historically, as we all know, the rivers of Florida,
1: all of them were used by native peoples for the last several thousand years. And how they tie in with the Seminole Wars, several of them have direct links to the different Seminole Wars. And we'll start with the Apalachicola. Because really, the first Seminole War started on the Apalachicola River. And it started before the actual dates of the first Seminole War. It started in 1816. A couple of years before that, the British turned over a
0: fort to maroons, free blacks and escaped slaves on the Apalachicola River. That would be the Negro Fort on Prospect Bluff. It was located in Spanish territory, neighboring Seminole tribal villages and towns.
1: Yes, and this was the largest maroon village at the time in North America, according to Dale Cox, historian that did a lot of research on this and did a great book on Prospect Bluff. If you visit the site, it's not open at the moment, but it will be again. It got closed because of Hurricane Michael in 2018. It's not really a big bluff, you know, but it is the highest ground around there and it never really floods. So it was a trading post first and then it's been a couple different forts there. The British turned over this fully fortified fort fully armed, to over 300 people that wanted to defend that. And the British promised that they would be back, and of course, they never came back. The Americans felt threatened. The Americans, America did not own Florida. It was still Spanish territory, but Spain was having a hard time defending its borders at the time. The United States government had a fort at the top of the river, Fort Scott, and they would try to send supply boats up and down. So they felt threatened by this fort, and they determined that they needed to destroy the fort. And so they sent a fairly large army down the river. This is on the uh, east bank of the river. And there was a land bell that happened in July of 1816. And this went on for seven days, this land battle, It basically a siege. The land forces were large, but they couldn't penetrate the fort's defenses. The fort had moats. They had open areas, and they had lots of cannons, so they could cover the ground. And nobody could really penetrate the defenses. A Navy fleet sailed up the river and started a naval battle. It didn't last too long. They started heating up cannonballs in their ovens, and kind of a lucky shot that one witness account said it was uh, a ricochet off a tree, hit the ground, and rolled into the fort's magazine, uh, something that you couldn't really repeat if you tried. And it hit the magazine and blew up the fort and killed 270 men, women, and children out of 320 defenders of the fort. And so that was the end of what they called Negro Fort. At that point, the American forces retreated. They captured some of the survivors, put them back into slavery, killed some of the defenders as well. The frontier along Georgia and Florida was not settled. There was lots of conflict. About a year later, there was a couple raids on Fowl Town along the Georgia and Florida border. That was uh, Chief Neumatla's village. And several men, women, and children were killed during these raids. Some of the Creeks that would be called Red Sticks, some of them were survivors of the, the Big Horseshoe Bend battle. They were in Florida and they sought revenge. So they wanted to stop any supply boats going up the river to Fort Scott. November thirtieth, there's a supply boat with some men, women, and children, and the creeks attacked and killed most of the people. They captured one woman, and I think they killed 33 men, several women and some children. It's a little and they captured one woman who was they kept for about a year or so. This pretty much led to the big effort by Jackson in the spring of eighteen eighteen that was considered the first Seminole War. But the Battle of Negro Fort pretty much started that conflict. And then when Jackson came down, he came down first along the Apalachicola River. And the site of the old Negro Fort, he had Lieutenant Gadsden rebuild the fort in different design. And Gadsden did it in 10 days. And Jackson was so pleased that he named the fort, Fort Gads after him. And Gadsden County is named after Lieutenant Gaston, who eventually settled in Florida. Jackson's soldiers, they came down in was springtime. It was very scenic, very nice weather. And so... Many of them came back after the hostilities stopped. They came back and settled in Florida. It pretty much opened the way for some of this area to be settled. But Jackson went on to raid Creek villages in Tallahassee Miccosukee. and His force was the largest force since, I think, Monroe came down in 1704 to raid the Spanish and the Appalachian Indians. So this was a huge force. About 2,000 Georgia and Tennessee militia, 1,500 Creek warriors, 3,500 men. It was a huge army. And really, no village could stand up to that larger land force. And so most people just fled. They heard about them coming. The villages were abandoned. So after Jackson burned the villages and the food supply at Miccosukee, he went down to St. Mark's, which the Spanish had a fort there, and they had a fort there for a long time, San Marcos de Appalachia. Well, the Spanish took one look at the big army, and they just surrendered. Not a shot was fired, and Jackson took over that fort. He captured two Creek leaders. One was the Prophet Francis. Uh, He got them by ruse and he executed both of them, and then he captured two British subjects, and he executed those as well, even though the military court recommended lashes, imprisonment. Then he proceeded to go move towards the Suwannee River. But so Here's another river tie-in, the Swanee. So the Fort St. Marcus is on the confluence of the wakala and St. Mark's rivers. They come together, and then it goes on another four or five miles into the Gulf of Mexico from there. It's a very strategic point. But Jackson moved on through the swamps and fought with the Peter McQueen's Red Stick Band in kind of a running battle until he hit the Suwannee River. Then there was a battle at Bolegstown on the Suwannee near present-day Old Town. And, and most of the people fled across the rivers. Rear guard action to protect the people from going and getting killed, they made it across the river. And Jackson pretty much stopped at that point his advance. It didn't cross the Suwannee. He then retreated and went to Pensacola and took over Pensacola for a while. And then he went back home. And Now, word didn't get out for quite a while that he attacked Spanish Florida. It wasn't really known to a lot of people at the time. But again, what he wanted to do, and that was to eliminate the enemy, what they perceived as the enemy around the Appalachia Cola River in that area, and uh, that's exactly what they did. The Americans did build Fort Fanning there in 1838, The Swanee River plays back into it in the Second Seminole War when the United States built Fort Fanning in 1838. They want to protect the crossing and also establish a base of operations there. So there were several skirmishes still in the, the Big Bend of Florida. Plantations were raided and so forth. Tallahassee was on alarm. Tallahassee itself was not raided, but the outlying plantations had different battles and raids during the Second Seminole War. And one somewhat humorous account was the Tallahassee men were on guard around Tallahassee, and they saw something moving at night. They swore it was a Seminole, and they shot it. It turned out to be a pig wandering around, so they killed a pig at night. <laughs> they got some good dinner at the end. So, <laughs> But the major battles occurred farther south. During the Second Seminole War, to the Dade Massacre, the Seminoles started taking more advantage of the wet topography of Florida. Around the Apalachicola River, there's lots of swamps and everything, and they were situated along the river, mostly in farms. And the fort there, their old British fort, And so they were a little bit easier found, the villages were found, but the Seminoles became a little more wise during the beginning of the second Seminole War. They're basically, they camped primarily around the Cove of the Whiplapucci River, which was a very swampy area, not known to a lot of people. A lot of hammocks so they could set up villages and everything, but there was a lot of swampland in between. You really had to know the country to navigate through that. And very few of the American forces, anybody with them, even the Creek allies, didn't know that country. And so they had a disadvantage trying to engage with the Seminoles in that area. St. John's factors in I don't have a lot of information about some of the battles along the St. Johns. The Peace River obviously it factors somewhat into the third Seminole War. Payne's Landing, there was a trading post and this preceded the actual third Seminole war. The landing was established the Trading Post in 1849, and it was raided that same year by a band they call renegades. And I think some of these people were what they call the Spanish Indians, which may have been made up partly of Calusa remnants, and they spoke Spanish. They were responsible, they believe, maybe for this raid, along with the raid on Indian Key and possibly a raid on the Hatchie River in 1839. So they were blamed for some of the different hostilities that occurred in that region. Because of that raid on the trading post, there was a fort built nearby, fort, if I can pronounce it, Choconica, and was built there. Today, there's reenactments that occur in early March. I don't know what they're doing during COVID, but they have been occurring in March at Payne's Creek Landing State Park on the Peace River. There were different battles around the Peace River. The St. John's, the Peace River, and the many other rivers in Florida, river travel was obviously the easiest way to travel through Florida. There was a few roads, but they were very hard to defend. They often didn't have river crossings. They had to have ferries across the rivers. And if they did have a bridge, like on the Hillsborough River, they had to be defended by a fort so they wouldn't get burned down. So the river travel was much easier especially the larger rivers that didn't get clogged by snags, like some of the smaller rivers. And so you can move some fairly large ships on rivers like the St. John's pretty far up into the territory of Florida. That was a major resupply avenue for the military during the wars. What you'll see during the Seminole Wars, you'll see a common pattern of developing a series of forts different along different routes. And so if we move a little south, you, you can hit the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes and Kissimmee River area. And during the Second Seminole War, when Zachary Taylor was moving down, he built a fort at Lake Toho Palaga, which is the a seminal name for a fortress place. And so that was the place that Wildcat was believed to be born on Makinson Island there, in Lake Toho, around 1809 or so. There was a battle with Wildcat in Shingle Creek. Shingle Creek is part of the headwaters of the whole Kissimmee River chain. That's near the town of Kissimmee today. And it's still a wild place because it's very swampy. It's very pretty. I've kayaked through there. In 2007, I did a kayak trip from Kissimmee to Lake Okeechobee through the Kissimmee Chain of Lakes and the Kissimmee River with an expedition team. And we were believed to be the first group to paddle the river since the Seminoles, probably about a century before that. And certainly this was the heart of Seminole land. It would lead up to the major battle like the Battle of Lake Okeechobee. And so Taylor built the fort at the top of Lake Toho, and he started moving down the river. And so some of the Seminoles he captured and some surrendered along the way. He built another fort, which was about 17 miles above the mouth of the river into Lake Okeechobee, what he called Port Bassinger. Visit the town of Bassinger today. Of course, there's no sign of the fort, but there is a historical marker. There's an old, very old house that's now a museum place. And it's an interesting place to visit. And that's roughly 17 miles above the mouth. And so we built the fort there and left a lot of sick men. Seminole War was treacherous to the soldiers and militias. Most died of disease, and so it was very easy for them to get malaria and other diseases. So we had to leave a group there to guard Seminole prisoners and to leave a lot of sick men. And that reduced his force of 1,000 down to about 800. By the time he reached Lake Okeechobee, he had about 800 men, which was enough to engage the Seminoles, who so had roughly 400 or so. They were definitely situated in a better spot for defending themselves. And an interesting reference in the Chazowitzka River, which is located kind of near Homosassa in that region, it's, it's a lot of spring fed. And I found a reference in an early 1950s book on rivers by uh, Lou Ballin. They mentioned that there was a spring that the locals, they, they had a derogatory name for it and whole, basically, because a lot of the black warriors and Seminoles that died defending that area were the bodies were in that spring at that time. And so at that time, they had a marker on the spring, skull and crossbones. And that's gone now, and, and very little is known about that spring today. But I did find a reference in that book, which I found quite interesting, a little bit chilling as well. Difficult to pronounce, Chazahowitzka, which basically means hanging pumpkins in Seminoles. I grow them in my garden, the Seminole pumpkins, and they climb a lot. They can climb trees. And so they often planted the pumpkins in different hammocks. They wouldn't need a lot of tending because they would start getting climbing and getting out of the reach of deer. Which they love, those the blossoms and the pumpkins. They come back then and harvest some of the pumpkins. Hawitzka, which the locals just called the Chaz, means hanging pumpkins, some of the creek tongue. A lot of these names have been bastardized a bit because of the time where people were making maps and trying to put down the different Indian names of rivers. They weren't linguists, there was no written language of these native languages at the time. They'd often try to just put it down the way they heard it and sometimes they didn't get it quite right, so there's sometimes debates over how they're pronounced. I mention the same work in the Wakulla because they came together at that fort, and Josiah Francis, who was a leader of the Creek Seminoles, lived about three miles upriver. He had a big village on the Wakulla River there. He was one of the ones that were killed by when it came down. Some of the other ones, the River was mentioned by the surgeon that wrote the diary during the Second Seminole War, Jacob Mott. He wrote about the Itchituckney River and just they camped there, and that's where I found the first name description of the Chatechne River. So I used that in one of my books. I found some of these diaries very helpful to find descriptions of places. It may not be a description of a battle, but they describe places that I'm going to today. It's always good to get those eyewitness accounts when I can. I don't know a lot of history as far as with Seminole Wars with some of these rivers. I'm sure there was some because the Seminoles used, I'm sure, on nearly all of these rivers, <laughs> Seminoles and creeks. I just don't know if there were battles on all of them. I'm a little more familiar with some of the swamp streams as far as some of the battles. The Glockner River, which is near Tallahassee, that's in between the Apalachicola River and the Wakulla and St. Marks. And it's a fairly large
0: river, and it goes down from Georgia to the Gulf. These rivers were used for the removal of the Seminole as well as of the creek. During the Seminole Wars, we also have to keep in mind that
1: there was a Creek Indian removal going on in Georgia and Alabama. They were trying to move all those folks to Indian territory. Some of the creeks during that time fled down into Florida to escape removal, and one of those was a band of over 100 people. When people are on the run, especially a band of 100 or so, it's hard to feed them. You're on the run. You can't plant anything. You can't hunt enough game while you're moving like that. I started starving, and eventually they surrendered on the Oklahoma River. So it's kind of a sad story. I don't have all the facts in front of me about that, but that was during the time of the Second Seminole War and when the creeks were also being removed to go to Oklahoma. The Oklahoma, of course, was where they had the Treaty of Payne's Landing in 1832, so This was very historic because this is the document, the call for the Seminoles to move west. A year later, a delegation of Seminole leaders were sent to Indian Territory to look it over. This is where the dispute comes in, whether or not they knew what they were signing or agreeing to, but some of the Americans said they agreed to move and some of the Seminoles, said they didn't understand the documents. It wasn't great interpretation and they felt like they were deceived. And so... Uh, they came back, and some claimed that did not sign anything, and the Americans said they did. And they had this treaty to require the Seminoles to move. That led to the Second Seminole War. A treaty was signed on the Okalawaha River, moving down to some of these other ones. Of course, I covered the Wiflacoochee River, which is, with the of the Wiflacoochee and all that, I think most people are familiar with some of the major battles that occurred. That was very early in the war. General Clinch started out with the battle. He didn't know that major data had been wiped out. So three days later, he was crossing. He found an old leaky dugout and crossed his regulars across, about 250 men, left behind about 500 volunteers, and then they were attacked on the west side of the river. They had to do a couple of bayonet charges to allow enough time to retreat back across the river. They made a makeshift bridge because the dugout obviously wasn't going to work for a fast retreat, and they moved back across. The general thinking of the American generals at the time was that the Seminoles were not organized enough. There was too much infighting then to be organized into a large fighting body. Well, they were wrong, obviously. The Seminoles had about 1,000 fighting men, at least, around the Wipipichi River area, so that was a pretty sizable force. There were several battles after that, and one famous one was when Gaines started to build a fortress, and he was basically trapped. then for about eight days, the General Clinch came to rescue him. Camp Izzard was able to kayak that river, and I knew the history, so I was able to see some of the spots. And, I, and there's really not a lot of interpretation going on along the river when you're on the river. You just have to kind of know these things. If you go to, like, um, um, Fort Cooper State Park, they have a terminal trail with signs, and that's the type of place to go and get a lot of the history of the whole the, the battles in the region. So I encourage people to go to Fort Cooper State Park and learn about some of that history there. That was the beauty of Makinson Island in, in Lake Toho. They call it the fortress place because they could leave the canoes on one side, they could fight soldiers on one side, and when they went on the other side of the island, they would just get in their canoes and take off. And so the soldiers would get on thinking they're going to engage with these people. They, they were already gone. That was the beauty of the rivers as well. They often had canoes stashed, and they could retreat. And the same is true of the Everglades area. One side of the island, they would have canoes, they could fight, and then they could retreat out on the other side with the canoes. The Seminoles made great use of the waterways and topography in the swamps of Florida, and that's pretty much the only way they could survive like they have, whereas the creek in Georgia and Alabama, they really didn't have that same type of terrain to hide out like the Seminoles did, and so they were mostly captured.
0: Tell us about the trickiness of the Hillsborough River for why they had to build and protect a bridge over that span.
1: Right, yeah, the Hillsboro that was a major site. It would take about two days for a group of soldiers with supplies to cross that river without a bridge, and so they built a bridge there. So a lot of these rivers, during the rainy season, it was pretty fast. The Hillsboro today even has rapids in the state park. You can see those you realize that could be a little tricky to cross in a wagon so they built the bridge and they had to build a fort to guard the bridge and this fort uh, at first they call it fort alabama and then they changed the name when they built it a second time (laughs) so they abandoned the fort and they came back they had to protect the crossing because this was on the fort king road same road that major dade went down and, and got massacred and at one point when they abandoned fort alabama they left the booby trap by the magazine, and they heard a boom, and sure enough, the booby trap had killed two Seminoles that came in right after the soldiers left. But then they went back and occupied the fort, and like a lot of the occupations, the greatest disasters happened because of disease. Trying to live in the fort in the summertime with disease and mosquitoes and bugs and it was just an awful existence, and many soldiers didn't survive. But they had, in some ways, too many soldiers to live inside the stockade, and so they had to have a lot of soldiers camping outside the stockade, so they were kind of sitting ducks for a lot of snipers as well. So you have to realize a lot of these forts weren't that big. You couldn't fit in 1,000 men inside of one of these forts, so you had to have large groups camping outside the stockades, and so they were a bit more vulnerable to snipers and so forth in attack.
0: And as for other rivers, like the Alafia.
1: Yeah, I don't know a lot about the Alafia. I don't know all the seminal history with all the rivers, but I'm sure they all factor in. I know the Alafia most of modern day of having to kayak the Alafia with some minor rapids and so forth, and with phosphate history. And when you get down to Fish Eating Creek and so forth, there's more history as battles and forces went down exploring the area, looking at the edge of the Everglades and Lake Okeechobee, So there was lots of activity with the soldiers and armies and so forth moving around. There's lots of good descriptions of places like Fishing Creek as a result of these soldiers going through and reading the diary. Okay, Doug, another river, Kissimmee. The Kissimmee, the upper part is a series of lakes with the river connecting in between. And then it gets down to the major river, which if you go down the Kissimmee, the restored section, get a feel for it. It looks like the Everglades with a river going through it. It's real wide in places. There's tree islands and lots of Brass. And so it's fairly open. So you can get a feel for that country. And that's why it's called the Northern Everglades or the Everglades Headwaters area. So it's really part of the Everglades system. This was one of the hearts of the Seminole country. And so Zachary Taylor moved down the Kissimmee River and captured Seminoles along the way and built Port Bassinger. And then the battle took place along the Lake Okeechobee, it was only about 19 miles away from Port Bassin. It was 17 miles to the lake and then about two miles more to the east where the battle took place. Very strategic. And then the Seminoles simply moved farther south. Lake Okeechobee then didn't have the dike and so the battleground and the lake itself was quite different. There's no dike. It had an outlet that went into the Everglades, flowed into the Everglades. There's a the natural flow, it's no farm fields, no dike, no canals. And so. It's quite different back then. I don't mention much of the Caloosahatchee River, but that factors in because there was a battle there as well. When there was a peace treaty that occurred around 1839, there was a raid on a host of regulars along the Caloosahatchee River, and that kind of broke the truce. And that was blamed on what they call the Spanish Indians as well. They don't know for sure that. The Luxahatchee. The Ossahatchie have had two major battles, and they were considered the last battles that weren't just the guerrilla warfare type battles. So let me go into that just for a minute. First battle was January 15th, 1838. And Lieutenant Powell came up with an Army-Navy force looking for the Seminoles and found them, and they were repelled. So they had to retreat because the Seminoles had a pretty good stronghold along the Los Hatchet River. The Seminoles had a habit, and they started this with Major Day, that they would look for the officers first and shoot them. And this would cause a lot of confusion among the regular troops. And the same happened in this first battle. The officers... They killed a couple, but they also wounded several, and so that stopped the retreat. So it was a combined Navy force. They did have ships, and they could shoot from the water, and that really aided the Americans as well. If you go to the Loxahatchee River, the lower part's pretty wide and everything, but it gets pretty narrow farther up. So. It was somewhat limited how far up they could go. They did use some boats during the battle, and they were able to retreat easier because of the river as well. When the second battle happened, they had a larger force, about 1,500 men by uh, General Jessup, and they were able to to flank the Seminoles, so the Seminoles did retreat from that area. They drove them out of the Loxahatchee area. There was some debate as to exactly where these battles occurred, but at least one occurred where the River Bend Park is today, and that's where they have the annual gathering. I do want to mention that Loxahatchee really should be pronounced Lojahatchee, which means Turtle River. That's the pronunciation. There was a reference by Betty May Jumper that they called it at that time the Lotsahatchee because it was called the River of Lies because after the Battle of Loxahatchee, there was a treaty, the Macomb Treaty of 1839, that was a truce. And so a lot of the Seminoles thought things were pretty much there was a truce and they'd be living peace south of the lake Okeechobee in that area when the truce was broken they say on the Caloosahatchee River word didn't always spread quickly not like today when you have news flash on your radio or tv or phone along the La some Seminoles were captured they had thought they were had a truce going on and they were captured and that's why they call it the river of lies cause they thought the Americans had broken the truce Miami River The Miami River was only about four miles long, and it drained part of the Everglades. It was spring-fed, and it did have rapids on both forks of the Miami River. It was a pretty wild river. It was used by the Seminoles for transportation. And continued to be used for the 1900s for transportation. Today, it's quite altered. Fort Dallas was built down in Miami, and they also had a battle at the lighthouse, Cape Florida. Lots of seminal history and war history around the Miami area. But the Miami River was great artery to get go back and forth into the Everglades to the more coastal areas. Where they could access the, wa- the coastal areas, the water, the fish resources, as well as even go to the Bahamas in some of their trips and such.
0: And in the Miami area, the Army was surprised at these Spanish Seminoles, who they didn't even anticipate existed.
1: Yeah, so the Spanish Seminoles, Chicaica, I believe, was their leader, and he utilized this area quite a bit, went down and raided Indian Key. He was killed in the Everglades area, not that far from Miami and Homestead area. There is a little area that they marked the spot where he was killed and hung along with some of his men. Spanish Indians, they believe, had some collusive blood. The Seminoles do claim today that they are an amalgamation of different tribes that were in Florida, as well as the Creek Indians that broke off from Alabama and Georgia and maybe some stuff. South Carolina.
0: Ordinarily, when the Army captured Seminole, including the chiefs, they would hold them and then deport them to the Oklahoma Territory. But that's not what happened in this case. Colonel Harney had something to say about the dispatches in this particular instance. Why was that?
1: Right, yeah, Colonel Harney utilized rivers combined with Lake Okeechobee, combined with swamp. The Everglades at that time, during many months, you could navigate the Everglades. It wasn't necessarily easier pulling through grass, but there were little stream openings through the Everglades River of Grass but you really had to know what you were doing. He went across the Everglades hunting Seminoles, and he did find some too. He would try to pressure if he did capture some that they would let him know where the next band was hiding and so forth. He was one of the first of the American leaders to actually navigate through the Everglades hunting Seminoles. They realized they had to get smaller boats to navigate some of these areas in the Everglades area and so forth. They couldn't bring a big boat. They had to use almost like larger dugouts. The Army, I noticed, there's a mention they spent a certain amount of money for dugout canoe maybe like $2.50, where the Navy spent about 10 times that much for similar type boats, so somehow the Navy spent a lot more money than the Army did. They realized they had to use smaller boats, and changed their whole different way of fighting an enemy because this was not open seas. This was not the Navy that most people had signed up for battling big warships on the open seas. This was, you're going through swamps. You're going through little rivers. You're going hidden tree islands. You're trying to hunt an enemy that's very elusive and knows the country a lot better than you and they can hide a lot better and do guerrilla warfare. It was a totally different type of warfare. Harney was really the first to explore that type of warfare. And a lot of the American leaders already knew that it would be very hard to engage and find all those Seminoles in the Everglades. Some of them wanted to just let them be. Just just forget about them. what ended up happening by the time 1842 came around. It's like, I think we won. Claim victory and leave. There's a few left,
0: but just claim victory and leave. And that's pretty much what they did. Okay, Doug, we've covered the rivers that we can that have ties that we know about to the Seminole Wars. Give us a big picture from your book on Florida rivers in general and why. They were so important to waging the Seminole War for either side.
1: The book is on Florida rivers. The subtitle is a celebration of over 40 of the Sunshine State's dynamic waterways. When I write about places like rivers, I like to give the reader some perspective of the history of that river. I may not go into a huge amount of detail because I'm covering over 40 rivers, but I want to give them enough to where if they want to research it, it might pique their interest and explore further the history of those rivers. Because when you go down these rivers, there's really no markers for the most part. There's no forts, (laughs) nothing to see that tells you that this battle occurred or this fort was here, or even if this town occurred here, because Florida wipes away signs of people very quickly. I interweave a lot of what some of what I mentioned is in the book. I mentioned some of the battles, like on the Loxahatchee and the Wiflacoochee, the Apalachicola. Hopefully, that will pique some interest, and they will appreciate the history if they do go down the rivers in a boat or a kayak or canoe, or on land and go visit some of the parks and historic sites along the way. And so... I feel my purpose is to highlight the history as well as the ecology and some of the wildlife and some of the ecological challenges these rivers face. i try to weave all that in there and give it a broad perspective that way. A lot of people don't realize the code with Coochie. if you haven't read some of the list, you don't always realize that's an incredible spot that's on the Coochie River that you can go down that river and go right past some of the spots where the battles were. A lot of land now is in public ownership, which is great. So hopefully there'd be more interpretation and maybe some type of museum in some of these places. In other places, when I talk about this book, a lot of people have visited a few of the rivers, but they haven't visited all of them. And so hopefully I'm enlarging their bucket list, they want to really explore Florida more. And Florida really is a land of water. And so to really explore Florida, you really have to engage in some activities. It could be a motorboat, but some of these rivers aren't too accessible
0: by motorboats. So it's better to go in a kayak or canoe. And go a little slower and you can appreciate it a lot more. Doug, having covered the river so thoroughly, what do you do for a follow-up? I did want to mention my next book I'm researching right now. It'll it'll take a year and a half to come out as on Florida's
1: coast. It's going to be similar. I do weave in some seminal history, and that was one reason I visited Egmont Key in early December because that was one of the spots where some of the Seminole prisoners were housed from the Third Seminole War. So I wanted to visit that spot, and I'd read some accounts of that. A ferry boat over there and had a really good walk around Egmont Key. That's where Polly Parker and some others were on a boat to go to the Western Territories. They stopped at St. Mark's. And she escaped along with some others and made her way back down to the Everglades area. She's considered the matriarch of many of the people. A lot of people descend from Polly Parker. She had a lot of kids, a lot of grandkids. And she escaped from a boat that came from Egmont Key. And so they consider Egmont Key almost a sacred spot that way because but they appreciate the bravery of the people that did escape. Can I break it down into 12 segments of the Florida coast. And I was fortunate that many years ago, I mapped out a sea kayak trail around the entire state for the state of Florida, so I'm very familiar with the coast. So I went back and visited some key spots. I start in the Pan Hill, go all the way to Key West, and go all the way up to the Georgia border. So I cover the entire coast. And obviously, I can't go into huge detail on every segment, I do cover some key spots. I mentioned Egmont Key. I cover some of the key natural areas. I cover some of the small towns that have survived the onslaught of condominiums and rapid development. I cover some of the historic spots and the lighthouses like Cape Florida. I do mention some of the seminal history as well as some other types of history that occurred along the coast. And just like the rivers, Florida coast is fascinating. It's diverse. The history really ranges from... Native Americans, to pirates, to smugglers, prohibition, drug smugglers, on up. And so I cover all that. And I got the former drug smuggler in Everglades City, so that
0: was interesting. (laughs) You will explore the effects of shipwrecks on the coasts, certainly for the Seminoles and then for others. They filled shipwrecks just like the people in the Keys and the people
1: in Southeast Florida They survived because they filled shipwrecks. So shipwrecks have been providing sustenance for people for a long time, including Native Americans, along especially the East Coast of Florida. So I do mention some of that. And they also received a lot of military supplies along the coast. Initially, they would get some of their supplies from Cuba and some places like that. They would do some trading for guns and powder and so forth. And that was along the Gulf Coast quite a bit as well. Coast was very important for trading and for navigating, and some of the big Seminole canoes often had sails and they can go a pretty good ways. They could even, there's stories of them going to Cuba the
0: Bahamas and places like that even. So it wasn't like these little dugouts. These are some of big canoes that could be used for trading. Doug, let's do a brief recap on the books you have already published.
1: The Rivers book, and then we talked earlier about the Seminole Trail book. We have the novel. What's that called? Seminole Freedom. And Seminole Freedom does cover some of the same stories I mentioned. It starts with the Apalachicola River, and then it mentions some of the battles like on the, uh, with the Coochie River, and then some of the ones in the Everglades as well. So I, I weave a lot of history into that novel.
0: That will be an excellent segue for us from these Florida bodies of water to your novel. We'll have you back to discuss that in a later episode. In the meantime, Doug Alderson, thanks for joining us again for The Seminole Wars. Thank you very much. Enjoy it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of The Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation, 2022, all rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music, second seminal win by Jed Merum and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.